Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we can open your word together. Um, thank you for this privilege and this honor. Um, please may it speak to us today. Please bring the message that you want across, and may we have hearts open to receive it. In your name we pray. Amen. I want you to imagine that it is a cold and misty morning. You are in the town of Kukuyu, which is a, a small little town just outside Kenya's capital of Nairobi. You're walking along, and up ahead of you, you see two men running down the town's main road. You look a bit closer, and you see that their hands are tied together. They have a string connecting their two wrists. It's all rather strange. Because the road doesn't have a proper sidewalk, they're running in the road, but it's a busy road. There are lots of cars, so every time a car comes closer, they jump back onto the pavement and carry on running, and then go back onto the road. It's quite scary stuff, but they look like they've done it a lot. They are used to the routine. If you're a little bit confused about what's happening, it may help to know that one of these runners is blind. Here we are. I think I have a picture of them, if I can find it. There we go. Uh, the, the shorter one of the two is an athlete. His name is Henry Wanyoki. And his guide, the taller one, is Joseph. And they've been running down this road. It's about seven miles long. They've been running down it three times a day for the last 12 years. And Joseph, as the guide, he runs just behind and just to the right of Henry, and he tugs on the string to direct his companion. You see, Henry's blindness has not stopped him from running. He has won medals and won races all over the world. The only difference for Henry is he has to run by faith. He has to fully trust in Joseph rather than running by his own sight. Please keep that story in mind. I think it's going to come in useful later on. Today we're starting the second part of our series in Genesis. And we did the first part a really long time ago, I think even before the pandemic. Um, so Genesis is made up of these two sections. The first section is chapters 1 to 11. And what makes this one section is that the focus is on the whole world. God is focusing on absolutely everybody. And we did look at that section a long time ago, so I'm going to quickly summarize it just to jog our memories. And if my summary is boring, we also have a pretty picture which can help. So you can just have a look at that if you would rather. So in these first few, um, first few chapters of Genesis, we see how God made a perfect world, a good and perfect world. He also gave humans free choice. Adam and Eve could do whatever they want. Um, unfortunately, they did not use that choice well. They believed the snake's lies, and they used their free choice to choose to have the knowledge of good and evil. Despite Adam, Adam and Eve's sin, we do see hope. In chapter 3 of Genesis, God promises to crush the snake. In other words, he's going to crush evil. We have to wait a very long time to see how he does that, but that's the promise we see right there. So Adam and Eve now have this choice. They have this, this knowledge of good and evil, the choice on how to live. And from chapters 4 all the way to chapters 11, we see various examples of that. We see Cain killing Abel. We see the sins get worse and worse until it leads up to God sending the flood. We see Noah's sin straight after the flood. And then we see the people come together to try and build the Tower of Babel. And through all of these disasters, all of these rebellions, we see God acting. He's intervening. He's mitigating sin. We see him send the flood to try and prevent sin. We see him scatter those, those builders from the Tower of Babel. So we can see God intervening. We can see those measures. But we can also see they're only temporary measures. The flood doesn't solve the problem of sin, neither does scattering people and giving them different languages. That's a little bit like sticking a finger into a dike and hoping it'll stop the leak. It helps a bit, but it's not going to work long term. 
It's going to take something bigger and something better and something more drastic to permanently defeat sin, which we look forward to in the New Testament. So that's the first section, chapters 1 to 11. You then move on to the second section, which is chapters 12, all the way to the end of chapter 50. Um, and what makes this a different section is the focus changes. It's not all, it's not everyone in the world anymore. It's now looking just at Abraham and his descendants. So God chooses just Abraham and says, I choose you and your descendants. You are going to be my people, the tribe of Israel. So Genesis, the first nine verses, uh, Genesis 12, 1 to 9, is an absolutely crucial passage in the whole Bible because God chooses Abraham and gives him three specific promises. So there we have Abraham, and God makes these three promises to him. Uh, the first one, uh, God will bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. This is repeated in chapter 13. God says he will make Abraham's offspring as countless as the dust on the earth. And again in chapter 15 we see it. He says your people will be as countless as the stars in the sky. So he's going to have a lot of descendants. They're going to be a great nation. Then the second promise he makes him, all people on earth will be blessed through him. And then finally, a third promise, uh, which we see in verse 7, Abraham and his offspring will receive land. So, so Abraham's got these promises, um, and on he goes. That's quite an intro. I'm aware we haven't even got to the passage that we're looking at today, so apologies for the long intro, but it does hopefully help to set the scene of what we're looking at today. Um, today's passages, 12 and 13, break nicely into two natural sections, which is why we had two readers as well. Um, and both of them are focused on how well, or maybe how badly, uh, Abraham trusts these promises that he's just received in the first half of the chapter. So the first test, the first challenge he faces is in chapter 12, and he's tested through poverty. We see him in Egypt, and the reason him and Sarah have gone there is, is because of poverty. And then in chapter 13, he has another completely separate test. This one is through prosperity, through wealth. We see him and Lot having to separate because they've almost become too wealthy. So let's look at that first situation uh, in, in Egypt. There's a famine, so Abraham and Sarah travel to Egypt. Now, it doesn't say, it doesn't give us any clues how much time has passed from those first nine verses to, to this passage. Abraham receives the, the promises, and then we have this passage. Um, so we don't know the time frame. But let's hope that he, that he understood the promises, he, he vividly remembers them, um, and he understands the power that he has. Uh, he's in a position of great power now. It says there, whoever he blessed would be blessed, and whoever he cursed would be cursed. Imagine having that much power. It's like having a magic wand with you permanently. Um, as well as the power, he also had a lot of responsibility. If all people on earth are going to be blessed through him, then let's hope He's going to act like a leader. Let's hope he'll be confident, morally upright. He should be talking about the goodness of God so that he can spread the blessing to everyone that he comes across. But that's not really what we see in this first section, is it? Yeah, we have Abraham giving his wife away to Pharaoh. Let's try and work out what was going through Abraham's mind uh, in this whole scenario. I think the first thing we can see is that Abraham was scared have a look in verse 12. They will kill me. That's not really someone who's trusting in the promises of God, is he? He's scared that they will kill him. Another emotion we see, he's selfish. To save his own skin, he lets Sarai be taken away to Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's palace. Verse 13 says, Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, 
and my life will be spared because of you. Basically, Abraham is using his wife as a human shield here. He's happy to send her off into the unknown to make sure that he stays safe. So we've got scared, we've got selfish, and I think he's also a little bit greedy. Have a look again in verse 13. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake. Abraham senses the chance to get some money, to get some possessions here. It's not an easy thing to say, but Abraham treats Sarah more like, more like her pimp than he does her husband. He's selling her to gain wealth. We don't hear Sarai's views of, of this whole encounter. I think that's probably just as well. But I'm going to guess she would not be very happy at being disowned as a wife and then given away to Pharaoh by her scared and selfish and greedy husband. In contrast, there have been some really famous romantics over the years, haven't there? Some people that might spring to mind, maybe William Shakespeare, writing all those amazing sonnets and poems and plays. Or maybe Casanova, He's known for his romance, although maybe more his womanizing than his actual romance. Who knows? What about this guy? Does anyone recognize him? This is a guy called Shah Yuhan. Uh, if the name isn't familiar, he built this building, the Taj Mahal. And the reason he built it, uh, it took him 10 years to do and cost absolutely all of his money, was he wanted to build a monument to his late wife. She had died giving birth to their 14th child together, and he was so devastated that he built this monument to her. And the story's got a happy ending. Today he is buried next to her somewhere in that palace. So in comparison to these three guys, Abraham doesn't do very well, does he? There he is, giving, Pharaoh, giving his, his wife away to Pharaoh. And to make matters worse, uh, in verse 16, Abraham did receive lots of gifts from Pharaoh. You can see it in verse 16 there, which he accepted. So we don't know what went through Abraham's mind exactly at this time. But I think if we look at the situation, we can probably make a few guesses. He's told some lies and therefore forced his, his, his wife to lie as well. These lies get believed by the Egyptians, so his wife is taken away. Now he's also getting gifts as well. So he's probably, probably standing there feeling a little bit uneasy. There's that feeling in the back of his mind going, this, this is a bit of a problem, it's not going well. But the lies just carry on snowballing, and they get worse and worse, and he doesn't have the courage to undo his error. He's helpless. Thankfully, even when we sin, God is still in control, and he steps in to rescue the situation. Still happens today in our day, maybe not quite as visibly or as, or as obviously as, as it does in this story, but God does still intervene. In this case, he sends diseases on Pharaoh and his whole household, and they realize the sicknesses are, are linked to Sarah being Abraham's wife and not his sister. Have a look at the next conversation that happens. Can you imagine how awkward this must have been? Abraham gets summoned, a bit like a naughty schoolboy, to the headmaster's office, and he gets properly told off. Can you see the irony here? Abraham is meant to be a blessing to the nations. And instead, Pharaoh has acted more righteously, more honestly than he has. God has sent Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. And I think it's quite clear to see immediately we're going to need someone better than Abraham as a blessing. So in verses 18, verse 19, uh, Pharaoh asks Abraham three questions. All of these questions are, leg are legitimate. Um, there's nothing unfair in these questions, and Abraham does not answer any of them. It's absolute silence from Abraham. We can imagine him standing there, probably feeling more and more embarrassed, and just wishing this whole situation would end and he can escape. 
Luckily, that is what happens, and they get asked to leave, which is probably just as well. One, one last side note before we also leave chapter 12. As we know from the rest of the Bible, God's chosen people, this is Israel, Abraham's descendants, they have quite a complicated relationship with Egypt. They get enslaved, they're slaves there for 400 years, then God rescues them through the 10 plagues um, and their escape from Egypt. So I think what we're seeing here, this kind of awkward um, exchange that we see here, is a good foretaste of what's going to happen, the battles that are going to be fought with Egypt in the years to come. And as we turn over to chapter 13 and look at the, look at the second part of the, of the reading, we can see that right at the start, Abraham's experience in Egypt carries on mirroring what the Israelites are going to experience later on. Verse 2, it says Abraham became rich from the Egyptians, just like the Israelites would be when they left Egypt later on. And in verse 3, after leaving, it says Abraham went from place to place until he came to Bethel. So he's basically wandering around in the desert, just like the Israelites would for 40 years. Can you imagine being Moses writing this book of Genesis and getting to this part and going, hold on, that's a little bit familiar, that's, that's what I went through. Anyway, onto the second situation in chapter 13. We once again see Abraham tested. And this time he's tested with prosperity, with wealth, not with poverty. Also some good news, he does a whole lot better in the second section, um, which, is, which is good for all of us as well. In chapter 12, um, Abraham was living by sight. He was literally living by what he could see right in front of him. He wasn't living by faith, and I don't think he was thinking about God's promises. In chapter 13, he does a whole lot better, and the dominant emotion that's guiding him now is faith. And in fact, if, as we're going to see in the next few chapters that we look at through the book of Genesis, Abraham's record of faith is kind of hit and miss. He has some bad moments, then he has some really good moments. So we've just seen the lows of chapter 12, giving his wife away, and we're now going to get to chapter 13 and see that he does a whole lot better um, in chapter 13. Chapter 16, I'm afraid he doesn't do very well. He sleeps with his wife's slave to produce an heir. And again, I'm not an, I'm not an expert here, but I don't think that's very romantic. Then we get another negative, chapter 20. He once again lies about his wife being his sister. He clearly hasn't learned, uh, so he lies to King Abimelech um, about his wife. Then we have chapter 22, uh, probably his crowning moment, his, his most famous moment of faith, when he shows he's willing to obey God, even to the point of sacrificing his son Isaac. So lots of highs, lots of lows, um, and that, that is Abraham's record of faith. And hopefully by the end of that, we'll have the feeling we need someone better than this. Abraham has good moments, but he's not the perfect solution. One strange thing I was thinking about is that despite this very mixed record, when we read about Abraham in the New Testament, he's regarded only as a hero. There's only good stuff written about him, not anything bad. And I was thinking, why is this? Did the New Testament authors just have rose-tinted glasses and only see the good bits? I think the answer is given to us in Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God really does remove sin, and he doesn't even mention them again. In the New Testament, we read about all these positive acts and none of the bad ones. The slate really has been wiped clean for Abraham and for us. Hebrews 11 is a great example of this. Um, it starts off by defining what faith is. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And Abraham is then listed as one of those ancients. 
By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land. Like a stranger in a foreign country, he lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So in the New Testament, he is one of the heroes of the faith. It's only when we look in the Old Testament that we see the whole story, the kind of warts and all story. Anyway, what happens in chapter 13? Abraham's household is getting bigger, it's getting wealthier, and the same thing is happening to his nephew, Lot. They've got lots of flocks, lots of herds, which means they need lots of water, lots of grass to graze, and lots of space. So they can't stay together anymore. It's not possible. This time, in contrast to chapter 12, Abraham acts wisely. He acts decisively, and he resolves the situation. I don't think it's a coincidence that before this tension even surfaces, if you have a look in verse 4, Abraham called on the Lord. Verse 4, called on the Lord. And I think that means praying, talking to God, taking time out to meet with God. It's also, verse 4, it's also the same place where he built an altar earlier. Uh, if we look back at chapter 12, verse 7. Um, so he's in the same place where he'd earlier built an altar to God. So this would have been a good reminder for, for Abraham that all of this land would one day belong to him and to his offspring. So all this positive emotion probably had a good effect on his next actions. He's mentally prepared. He's in the right place. So when the situation does arise, we see that in verses 5 to 7. In verse 8, Abraham acts. In the first challenge, Abraham may have felt like a bit of a passenger, just kind of drifting along like, like driftwood with the tide. This time he's stronger and he acts more decisively. He wants to remain on peaceful terms with his, with his nephew Lot, so he suggests that they split up. As, as someone who grew up on a, on a farming region, I grew up on an apple farm out in South Africa, I, I can tell you that splitting up land is not an easy process. It gets very complicated. Um, and when I was growing up, we actually had one strange situation on the farm quite close to us. Uh, this, a, a dad passed away and he left the farm to his two sons. And the two sons had to work out how we're going to split this. It was one, we need to make this two farms. So they haggled and they bargained and they, and they split the land. You obviously had to make sure everyone had uh, water, everyone had enough land to farm. And eventually they worked out a split and they split it all, but, but no one was actually happy with it. So there was the farm and eventually they tried to split it. And afterwards they just carried on moaning. The two sons kept on saying the other one's got the, other, the better half, the other one's better off. And eventually it landed up in a court uh, with the lawyers and a judge. Uh, and the judge was obviously a very wise guy because he said, look, if you're both unhappy with the half that you've got, Swap over, no more moaning, and problem solved, which they did. Um, anyway, that, the, the point I'm trying to make is swap, uh, swapping land and, and, and splitting land is contentious. It can even destroy relationships. Um, so it's, it's not a good situation for Abraham and Lot, but Abraham handles it incredibly well. And he doesn't act selfishly, and he doesn't try and secure the best land for himself here. I mean, if you were in, in Abraham's shoes, he could have said, look, look, Lot, God's promised me all the land. So it's all coming to me anyway. So I get it all, you get nothing. I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. But he doesn't do that. And in fact, he even lets Lot choose first which half he wants, which I think shows that here he's acting with trust. He knows that God is controlling events and God is, is withholding his promises, keeping them for him. So what information did Lot have for his choice? Lot looked at it all. We see in verse 10 in the east, the whole plain of the Jordan is well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the garden of Eden. 
And then in verse 12 and 13 we see, Lot chose to live among the cities near Sodom. And we see Sodom already had a reputation for sinning greatly against the Lord. So here we have it. Lot lives in the well-watered, the fertile lands, but close to Sodom. Abraham lives in the less fertile land of Canaan. I think it's also important here that if we look at how Lot made his choice, verse 13, verse 10, sorry, chapter 13, verse 10, starts off by saying, Lot looked around and saw, and then he chose. He looked, he saw, he chose. Lot is basing his decision on what is in front of him, on what he can see. The focus of this chapter is meant to be about having faith, about trusting God's promises, even if they're only going to be fulfilled a long time in the future. It's a nice contrast, isn't it? Lot is making his decision right on what he can see right here and right now. So there's a big contrast. One of the strange things about reading the Old Testament, one of the hard things, is that a lot of the time the author doesn't give us moral judgments. They tell us what happens in the story, but it's kind of up to us, up to us as the reader to work out whether the characters have acted correctly or not. We have to use our judgment. And it can be hard working out, have they done the right thing or have they acted badly? But often the author does give us subtle clues, maybe comparisons with other characters, comparisons with earlier phrases or early stories that help us work out whether these people are acting correctly or not. And I think in this situation, when we look at Lot's choices, there are a few clues to some of the things that have already happened in, uh, earlier in Genesis. Um, so the behavior of Lot is quite similar to Eve in chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden. Speaking about Eve, it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and ate it. She saw and she took, which is similar to what Lot's doing here. Or in Genesis 6, a very strange passage, when human beings began to increase in number of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of human were, humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. They saw, they chose. Here, Lot is also basing his decision on what he can see and that influences his choice. We've all heard the saying, seeing is believing. But here, God wants us to believe what we can't see. He wants us to have faith like Abraham does. He doesn't want us to act like Lot or like Eve or like the sons of God and just base it on what we can see. And I think we all know how badly that turned out for Lot. Having your wife turned into a pillar of salt is a memorable image and things do not go well for Lot with this decision. Taking it even one step further, there is a suggestion that Lot was also being a little bit greedy. He chose the best lands that would make him rich even though he knew it was going to mean living very close to a sinful city. He was willing to, to get close to sin if it meant becoming wealthy. Anyway, the decision is made, and straight after that, God once again reassures Abraham. He promises him, you're going to get all of the land anyway. Have a look in verse 14. To the north and south, to the east and west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. In verse 18, Abraham builds another altar to the Lord. Once again shows he's at peace with God. So that's the two passages, and I think there's a really nice symmetry to them. Chapter 12 starts off with promises, and after that you've got a test of faith. Chapter 13 starts off with a test of faith, and then once again God finishes off with promises at the end of it. And Lot is sort of involved, he's kind of in the background in both of these passages, but we can see that those promises that are made, they are made only to Abraham. His promises are only for Abraham here. Yeah. So what does this mean for us today? 
how do we apply this thousands of years later? On the one hand, these are nice historical Sunday school stories that the kids love. I think there are a few useful applic applications that we can pick up and use in our own lives as well. Number one, don't give your wife away to Egyptians. Number two, be careful when you choose an allotment. And on a more serious note, um, how do we make sure that we protect our faith against these threats that get against Abraham and get against Lot? What can we learn from Abraham and Lot in each of these passages? So I think from Abraham, I think we can learn we should spend time meeting with the Lord. Abraham does that in chapter 13, before and after that challenge, that second challenge. He meets with God before and after, and he's therefore more likely to act with faith. We can see how faithfully he does act. So daily prayers, daily quiet times, finding that time to meet with God, it's so much more important than we realize. Abraham failed in chapter 12 in the first challenge because he's scared. But there's also no mention in chapter 12 of him meeting with the Lord before or after that challenge. Then if we look at Lot, we need to be careful of getting too close or too comfortable to sin, just like Lot does in choosing to live next to Sodom. We need to be careful of worldliness. Sin becomes more and more normal. It creeps just a little bit further into our lives and carries on creeping. Lot's just focusing on what he can see. He's happy to get close to the sin, and in the end, he regrets it. For a little bit more application, I think we need to turn to the New Testament to see why Abraham is important to us even today. Our situation is obviously slightly different to Abraham. He had faith in God's promises, but from where he stood, he had no idea how they were going to be fulfilled. He just had to have faith. We're looking at it all a couple of thousand years later. We're looking at it after the life of Jesus, and we have the whole Bible in front of us. So we can see the answers to these questions. We can see how God is fulfilling and will fulfill them. Have a look at Galatians 3, verse 7. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. We have faith in Jesus. We are also descendants of Abraham. We are children of faith. When we look at the promises that God made to Abraham, we can see they've been partially fulfilled. They are only fully fulfilled later through Jesus. And even that will only be obvious at the end of time when we all celebrate it in heaven together. If we look at these promises made to Abraham, these three promises, let's look at the first one. Um, Abraham did have Isaac, and Isaac had kids, and they had kids, and they became a nation of Israel. Probably a pretty sizable nation um, with a lot of offspring, but are they as countless as the stars of the sky? Is it a great nation? Well, maybe, maybe not. They all got scattered, they got sold into slavery, they got exiled. Um, so it got partially fulfilled. But Galatians tells us that everyone who has faith is a child of Abraham. Every single Christian, all of us today, are counted as children of Abraham, just like from the song earlier. So is every single Christian throughout the ages as countless as the dust of the earth? In heaven, when we're all celebrating together, will we be a great nation? Yes, that is when this promise will be, will be fully fulfilled. Likewise for the second promise, Abraham will be a blessing to all peoples on earth. Does he do that? Does the nation of Israel? Well, sort of. They're a blessing to some of the other nations, but then they sin and they stumble and they get exiled and, and taken into slavery. So it's partially fulfilled. They, they are a, a great nation to some. They're, they're a blessing in some ways. But it's completely fulfilled in Jesus. He is a blessing to absolutely everyone on earth. He blesses us all. He provides a way to have our sins forgiven and be restored to God. And finally, the last promise. 
Yes, the Israelites receive the promised land. It's temporary, though, because they keep on sinning and it gets taken away. So the promise is partially fulfilled in the Old Testament, but will be properly fulfilled, completely fulfilled in heaven, a land that will never be taken away. Galatians 3, verse 8 and 9 finishes, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the, the closing question for us today, do we want to rely on faith and be blessed along with Abraham? Or like Lot, do we want to look for fulfillment in the joys and the pleasures of what we can physically see and enjoy in front of us today? Are we running the race like Henry Wanyoki? Are we running by faith, not by sight? Or are we living like Lot by what he can see? That's a rhetorical question. Please don't stand up and answer it now. But I think it is a question that we do answer every day with our lives. If we ask our, our spouse, our families, our friends, our work colleagues, our schoolmates, if we, if we ask them, are we living for this life or the next one, I think they'll be able to give us a pretty accurate answer. And even if we don't ask them, we only need to look at our own lives. We need to look at, at where we're spending our time, our efforts, where we're spending our money, where our dreams are focused, and we'll also be able to answer the question. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for these examples. Thank you for these heroes of the faith, um, even, when they, even when they mess up as well. Thank you that these stories are recorded so that we can see uh, what you expect of us. Um, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he fully fulfills these promises, and we can look forward to that. Please may we have faith um, that Jesus will fulfill these promises, and may we live for the next life. In your name we pray. Amen.